Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king. You might want to circle king in your Bibles. It's okay to do that. It's just page. It's just paper. Um, king, your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew quotes here, a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. So if you turn back to Zechariah chapter 9, it's really easy. Just go back to Malachi and then you come Zechariah. It's really easy to find. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. I'm going to circle nations. And his dominion, his rule, will be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd, uh, we know, hailed him as their king and all cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. That's probably Christmas. Um, But they worshipped him as their king, as as the, the prophesied king. Turn, though, now to Matthew 27. A short time later, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 20. Jesus has gone before Pilate. But the, verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of, you two, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they, and they said, the crowd said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they, the crowd, kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Now here's my question. How in a matter of probably this was what, almost what, a day? Did this crowd who, in the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, they, they sang Hosanna and welcomed him as their, their, the, the fulfillment of their prophesied king. And a day later they're saying, crucify him. Well, it's clear that Israel had missed and rejected their king. They had, a, they had a fundamental error in understanding the nature of their king and the nature of his kingdom. 
And to this day, a veil is, is over their eyes because they, if you refer to read Isaiah, I think it's in the 40, around 40 or 50, the, the, the prophecies of the suffering servant. They, they were expecting a, a political and military messiah uh, along the lines of King David who would deliver them from the heavy yoke of Rome. And here their king um, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and in fact would die on a cross. They had a misunderstanding of the nature of, the king, of their king and the nature of his kingdom. And I guess the, the, this, what I want to pose to us this morning is, could it be that although we have accepted him, and, and we understand that he came first as a suffering servant to die on a cross, we understand that. But, but I wonder, though, if we have not in some way misunderstood, in a different way, misunderstood the nature of him as our king, as king, and misunderstood his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. Now, there's differences in the church over this, of course. There are three primary views. The first view sees that Christ's kingdom won't be inaugurated until after his second coming, during what they call a literal 1,000-year reign. That's in, not until then will his kingdom truly be inaugurated. And, of course, the nature of that kingdom will be exclusively Jewish in nature. So his kingdom is not now. That awaits a future time during what's called the millennium. The second view is that God's kingdom was inaugurated at the time of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and that he is reigning now, that his, he has a kingdom now, but this kingdom is solely spiritual and inward in the hearts and lives of his people. That's the extent of his kingdom. It's only spiritual in nature. A third view um, is, and, and, and by the way, these, these are uh, obviously generalizations. We could go into much greater detail if we had time, but Christ's kingdom was inaugurated at the time of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. His kingdom was inaugurated then. John the Baptist came preaching, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. And that is, his kingdom includes both the spiritual, we, certainly this view would not deny that he reigns spiritually in the lives of his people, but that his, his kingdom also includes an earthly dominion, namely this earth. So the question is, have we misunderstood our king and the nature of his kingdom? Recently, a very prominent evangelical pastor teacher preached a sermon, and he said this, quote, We don't win down here. We lose. We lose here. They killed all the prophets. They killed Jesus. We're all going to be persecuted. Get it. We lose down here. Well, I want us to examine that statement. Is that true? And really, what we're talking about here is really, really not eschatology. Because when it gets right down to it, we're talking about what is the mission of God? 
What is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is, what is God's mission? Do we lose here? When Jesus comes, is he going to come to some satanically ruined uh, earth where he will use supernatural military power to, to, uh, to annihilate his enemies and then set up a, a, a literal uh, war state from the actual city of Jerusalem? Where, where do we begin? Do we lose here? Well, I want us to look at three truths. And again, uh, just because of time constraints, there, there are many more that we could look at. Uh, but three truths that I think will give us maybe some insight into the nature of him as our king. What do we mean when we say Jesus is king? Is it just, uh, again, is it just some kind of spiritual bubble that he's king of? Is it just king in heaven? Or, or, or is it different than that? Uh, turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 2. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2. Is Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of these statues and he asked for an interpretation. Daniel chapter 2. And again, for the sake of time, we will, we will just go to Daniel's interpretation and not look at the dream itself because the interpretation really reiterates what the dream was. Daniel chapter 2, we'll start in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or birds of the sky has given them into your hands and caused you to rule over them, you are the head of gold. So... The first was represented Babylon, the first kingdom. And, and these are things that obviously there is no disagreement over. That this, this vision represented Babylon. Verse 39, after that there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. And we know that this is both the Medes and the Persians, and, and the Medo-Persian and, the, and Greece, the second and third kingdoms. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. It will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. This is Rome. This is the kingdom of Rome. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. This is a fifth kingdom, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself, it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. We see that he prophesies these four kingdoms. And then this fifth kingdom, he says, he, he says is a stone that is cut out of this mountain. 
And he says that this, this, this kingdom, this, this messianic kingdom that we know now, strikes the feet of Rome, the kingdom inaugurated in the first century. In fact, it, it dis, it, it, you could argue it destroyed all of the kingdoms. But the point being is that it has already been it was inaugurated during the time of Rome. And it, and it will never be destroyed. He said, uh, in, was it verse uh, 30, was it 40, 44? It, will, it itself will endure forever. Now, turn over to Daniel chapter 7. So it has already been inaugurated. And it will never be destroyed. In fact, he says, I, Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like... A son of man was coming, and he came up. He's not talking about a coming down. He came up to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This picture of him coming up in the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father. What might, where might this have happened? Well, again, if you look at Acts chapter 1, what happened in his ascension? Acts chapter 1. When his disciples, after he'd given them the Great Commission, verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going... Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven, and we know that from verse 9, that it was with, or, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 9, with a cloud, he went up with a cloud from them. And the angel said that, that just as you see him going up into heaven in these clouds, so you will also see him come. I take this to be at, the, at the, the time of his ascension when he ascended to the Father and he came before the Ancient of Days. And God inaugurated his kingdom and said, in fact, he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that all the peoples, all the nations, and men of every language might serve him. Now let me ask you this. Is that not a happen? Could the Ancient of Days have given him this dominion, this kingdom, and, and prophesied that all the nations will, will praise you, and yet it not happen? It will never be destroyed. It, is dest- it was destined to overcome all opposing kingdoms. Just spiritual? We know that, back to Daniel chapter 2, we know that it's progressive. It will be progressive. Verse 35. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain. Became So it grew from a stone and it progressively grew and became a great mountain. It didn't shrink into a pebble. said, in fact, it will 
fill the whole earth, characterized by the gradual subjection of all enemies of God, which we're going to look at shortly. The, the kingdom has already been inaugurated. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God. It has already come. It, is, it, it, it started as a stone and is growing, and in fact, one day will become a mountain. So it's already inaugurated. We don't wait. We, there, there's nothing to wait for. Number two, it's, it's progressive. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. What is the nature of his kingdom? His kingdom is progressive. Matthew 13, verse 31. And this is in a section we, he's just talking about the kingdom. He said, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And he spoke another parable to them. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. It is progressive. He uses two images here. One of a mustard seed. Starts a very small seed. Very tiny seed. And what happens to that really tiny mustard seed? It gradually grows and grows and grows and grows and becomes a giant tree. That in this tree even the birds nest and, 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 and probably a, a vision of all of the nations and all the Gentiles coming and and participating in his kingdom. But the point is, he says, it starts off very, very small, but progressively grows and grows and grows. And and to make the the point further, he talks about leaven. And we all know what leaven is. Just a little bit of leaven will level the whole lump. And Jesus, in fact, will use this in other places to talk about the effects of evil. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of evil will grow and and permeate and influence a large group, a large crowd. But, but here he's using it in terms of influence. So to be sure, uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ here on earth, is slow, the growth is slow, far too slow for me. But it's inevitable. Just as inevitable a tiny mustard seed will become a large tree, just as inevitable as a, a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole dough. It's gradual, but it's comprehensive. See, I think where people, where, where we miss the kingdom is we think it's going to be like Jesus is going to bring, he was going to bring his kingdom like the 82nd airborne. That's not how the kingdom has come kingdom is slow. It's gradual. He, he, he likens it to a mustard seed. He likens it to leaven. Is it completed? No. You see, we, we, we look with our visible eyes and we see that it doesn't seem to be completed. And so we look for other solutions or other, uh, other explanations. It's not completed. But is it true? Yes. And, and we don't know where we are in the, in the growth of that mustard seed in, in terms of his kingdom on earth. And, and we don't know where we are in terms of at what point the leaven is leavening this, this lump. But it, it, 
His kingdom is not like a rocket launching. It, it's more like if, if we were to start here, if Larry and I were to start here and we got put backpacks on our back and we were going to cross the Rocky Mountains and we took off and we went east and, and uh, let's assume there's no I-70. What did I say, east? Yeah, so we go west. That kind of destroys my credibility in the whole illustration. We head west. Well, there's, a, there's going to be a slight in, 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 uh, increase in elevation. And then we get to the foothills, and then, then it'll get pretty steep. And we'll, make, we'll, we'll, we'll go up pretty steep, but then what will happen? We have to go back down. You know, we go back down for a while, and then we go back up. In other words, it's not a, it's not a, a continual climb from point A to point B. When, when we look at this progressive growth of the kingdom, it's not suggesting that there are not going to be setbacks, there are not going to be dark times. It's, it's not like a rocket launch where it just progressively and continuously and rapidly goes straight up. That's not, the, that's not the, the image that he's given us. He's given us the image of a mustard seed of leaven. It's slow, but it's comprehensive. It's inevitable. So his kingdom is already inaugurated, and it's, it's progressive. It doesn't arrive all at once. Uh, another illustration I, I was thinking about, I, I, when I was in high school, I ran track, and, and I was on the, one of the relay teams. And, and, and when, when we would pass the baton, there, there would be a moment where we were, both kind of, we were both kind of running. But only after the baton was actually passed, and then, then now the new runner will slowly begin to accelerate. It's not an instantaneous thing. Number three, though, and this is the most important, I think. It's victorious. Christ's kingdom is victorious. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. This chapter, he's talking about Christ's resurrection and, in fact, our own resurrection. We'll start in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who have died. For since a man came, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Here it is. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Now we know this coming is the second coming because he's talking about resurrection. The kingdom is already fully completed at the time of the second coming, because what does he do at the second coming? He hands the kingdom over to him. 
He hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has already abolished all rule and all authority and all power. He's already done that when Jesus went, went at the second coming. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Let's look again at what this text says. We know that the kingdom has already been inaugurated, obviously. We also know that at the time of the second coming, because again, he mentions this is about our resurrection, and when we are resurrected is at the second coming. And he says that at that time, he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, having abolished, having overcome, having destroyed all other power, dominion, and authority. You see, Christ, our king, his kingdom is overcoming all opposition during his current ongoing reign. Since the last enemy that is going to be destroyed is death then everything else will be yeah, everything else will be defeated prior to the second coming. Now the question is, what is the nature of this overcoming? What is the nature of this having, how does he say it in verse 24? After he's abolished all rule. Is this like Islam? You know, where we, uh, it's done militarily. Oh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. How is Christ's kingdom advanced? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Here are the enemies. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's not militarily. It's not by force. It's through the power of the gospel. It's through the weapons of our warfare that are divinely powerful to to destroy speculations and philosophies and beliefs that are opposed to God. See, it seems to me, and we're going to look at some of these now, the, the biblical evidence clearly points to a worldwide conversion. Now, In other words, what I mean by worldwide is a conversion... On an unprecedented scale. And I know everybody says, oh, doesn't look like it now. <laughs> it doesn't. Trust me, it doesn't. Can't see it now. But let's go back. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Remember, remember the Great Commission? What's the Great Commission? All authority has given to me in heaven. Is that what it says? All authority has been given to me in heaven. What does it say? 
and earth. Where's earth? Terra firma. Here. Okay, my question is, what's the sense of what's the what's the nature of that authority on earth? Uh, you just, I don't not I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just ponder that. What is the nature when he says all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth? Why would why would he have to add and earth? So, what's the nature of his all authority on earth? If, it's, if his authority is just a spiritual authority, why would he have to say on earth? And he says as a result, Therefore, because I've been granted all authority in heaven and earth, therefore, go and make disciples, set up some Bible studies, and get a few folks into heaven. He says, make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of him, teaching them to obey. Again, here's my question. Will that fail? Well, according to a prominent pastor teacher, it will. That will never be achieved. In fact, we lose. What about Malachi 1.11? This is really easy to find. Just go back. There be, should be like a, a blank page after Matthew. Go back one more. Malachi 1, let me, this is just one example. I mean, just read your Old Testament. Read your New Testament. Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. So the question is, do we believe that the Great Commission will be accomplished or don't we? Will Christ's mission fail? Now, I don't think this means that every single individual is going to be saved worldwide. Not some kind of perfectionism. I mean, uh, if, if... if there was, we'd see perfectionism in the church, but we don't. We still see sin and strife and contention and sin. Not perfectionism, not universalism, but conversion and influence on an unprecedented scale that, in fact, it can be said that the nations obey their king. Is it true? Yes. Is it completed? No. Still in process. We have to be careful that we, and, and I'm going to obviously, well, I'm not date myself because most people are my age here. We, 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 we don't determine God's kingdom based on the latest headlines. We, we determine it by what does God's word say. Now, I don't see it, neither do I. But I, 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 have to, I have to believe what God's word says. When he comes, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father. 
having abolished all rule, dominion, and authority. Having destroyed speculations and every lofty thing that was raised up against him. Now, undoubtedly, there are some objections that people will raise to this because maybe they come from different traditions. Some have just suggested, well, yeah, well, you know, the, the Christ's kingdom will grow, but, uh, but Satan's kingdom will grow too. This is what we call a parallel growth of two kingdoms. That they're parallel kingdoms and they both grow. And, and, and the growth of Christ's kingdom is paralleled by the by the growth of Satan's kingdom. And Satan's kingdom, kingdom, in fact, will grow faster and will have greater growth and will eventually defeat and overcome Christ's kingdom here on earth. And this is the sentiment that was, was preached in the sermon. We lose here. Get it. Well, I have a couple questions for us to ponder If Satan's kingdom is growing during the present age, then what effect did Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, what effect did it really have on, Christ, on Satan's kingdom then? Other than snatch a few out of his kingdom, what, what effect did it really have? What effect did the cross have if this is true? In other words, let me, let me put it this way. If Satan's kingdom was growing before the cross and is still growing, will overcome Christ's kingdom after the cross, then the cross did nothing to Satan's kingdom. Save provide the fact that those who believe in him go to heaven, which is not all bad. And that's, in fact, what many evangelicals believe. That, in fact, Satan's kingdom will eventually outgrow the God's kingdom and overcome God's kingdom. And as I said, it's this satanically ruined earth that he'll have to come and rescue us out of. No, I, 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 I read that the growth of God's kingdom will surpass and defeat Satan's kingdom. He, 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 he was given by the Father all rule and dominion, all authority in heaven and on earth. So some again say, well, we, we, have, we have two kingdoms that are going to be kind of growing, and ultimately Satan's kingdom will overcome this one, and, and again, we're going to need to be airlifted out of here. Well, others say, well, what about Matthew seven thirteen and 14? I'm going to turn there. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad, that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. See, I often wonder, where does the Scripture really teach that things are going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse? Well, this is one, one, one place that they turn. They enter through the narrow gate, for gate is wide, the way is broad, that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. I want to circle many. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are only a few, circle that, who find it. Now, this is the traditional 
This is the traditional interpretation of these two verses. That, 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 that most people are going to die and go to hell and, and, and be in Satan's kingdom. Because it says that, right? It seems to say that. The gate is wide, leads to destruction. There are many who enter through that. But the gate is small, the way is narrow, leads to only a few find it. So only a few are going to get into heaven. So that leads them to believe that things are, that Satan's kingdom is going to grow more and more and more and, and subsume God's kingdom and, and only a few are going to get into heaven. Well, is this, is this a, a, an accurate interpretation of these verses? Well, first of all, again, I want us to note that in other places, the Bible speaks of, a, of, of vast numbers of those who are redeemed. In fact, in, in Matthew's very gospel in chapter 8, look at me at chapter 8, verse 11. And Jesus is talking, when, when he healed the, 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 the centurion's faith, he said, I marvel that I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This, this Gentile centurion had more faith than anyone else in it, any Jew in Israel. And he goes on to say, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? In less than a chapter later, he doesn't say a few will come. He says many. Wait a minute. In chapter 7, verse 14, he says only a few. Which is it? Is it a few? Or is it many? He says many will come. And in this context, uh, sit at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, is he talking about Jews, Israel, will be cast out into outer darkness. Those who are, those who are claiming their ethnic background as a Jew will be cast out because they did not exercise faith in Christ. And those all of the many Gentiles who place their faith in Christ will come in. I would have expected him to say, I say to you that few will, a few will come from the east and the west because he just apparently got through saying that. Well, what about Revelation 7-9? Again, regardless of when you believe this will or has occurred, Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. He goes on to talk about verse 13. These were clothed in white robes. Who are they? They were when they came from. They came out of the great tribulation. Again, that's for another time. But, but, but listen to this. A great multitude which no one can count. That doesn't sound like a few to me. It seems to me in, in Matthew 7, in light of, and, and these are just two representatives. We, I mean, we could go to Micah. Um, uh, 
it seems to me that Jesus is dealing with the state of affairs as it then existed. In other words, there were very few Jews who had believed him at that time, and, and indeed over the course of his ministry, this did not significantly change. In fact, John 1.11, what does John 1.11 say? He came to his own, but his own what? Did not receive him. Only a few received him. This is not an eschatological text. There's no future tense in this. The, the text simply does not address how many will accept or how many will reject ultimately in the kingdom. That, that's not the purpose of this text. And if, and if you think otherwise, if you don't believe that, if, if, then there's a lot of work to be done reconciling all the other verses that talk about this vast multitude. The Bible says that the kingdom of light has not been overcome, will continue to overcome the darkness. Not just in the spiritual realm, but all of creation. And I think it's tragic that much of the church today actually believes and thinks in terms of defeat and surrender. This earth. His kingdom. Our king. But in scripture, I don't think we see a God or his church. I don't think we see his kingdom surrender history to the devil or to this world. Rather, this world is God's possession in which Christ has supremacy in all things. What does that mean? Christ, Colossians 1.18, Christ has supremacy in all things. Have we missed the true nature of God's kingdom? Have we limited his kingdom to some kind of spiritual enclave? So with all due respect to this prominent pastor teacher, we do not lose here. God's kingdom does not lose here. No, we don't get it. In fact, we agree with Jesus when he prayed, Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. Thy kingdom and thy will on earth as it is in heaven. Is that a mere platitude? Or does that mean something? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, um, when we consider the the totality of your word and we consider the nature of your kingdom, um, how can we ever possibly say that we lose here? I, I... when I think of your creation and your created order and, and this earth and, and history and um, 
Was it was it just to Snatch us out into some, just away from here into some kind of spiritual, I don't know, bubble? Or, or do we see in your scripture that your dominion, your rule, your authority, your nature will be manifested not just spiritually, but in fact will be manifested on earth? And as First Corinthians says, that when He ultimately comes again to raise us from the dead. Having defeated all of his enemies, all other dominions, rules, and and kingdoms, he will hand it over to you. The victorious king, whom you granted all rule, all dominion, all authority, Father, I pray that we would not be defeatist, not be pessimistic in our, in our view of this world and all that's going on. We understand that your kingdom grows slowly, but it's progressive. It will be comprehensive. And we don't know where we are in your plan. Given another thousand years, what's going on right now will be a drop in the bucket. Father, I see that your love and your grace is reflected not in a scant few who sneak into the kingdom, but a vast multitude that can't even be counted. That your grace and your power and your authority will be reflected in the vast numbers more who are experiencing heaven with you than those who have rejected So, Father, you know I, I, I get just as frustrated, if not more frustrated, than, than anyone here with the current state of affairs. And perhaps I am, am even more susceptible to, to pessimism and discouragement. But, Father, we have to keep the big picture in mind. We have to keep your kingdom in mind. We have to keep the nature of our king in mind. And this is the time in which we live and we must deal with it and we must respond biblically and we must do all the things that you have, you have called us to do and to be. But it's not just about us. It's about your kingdom and your plans. And as we look back over history, church history, we see periods of great darkness, periods of great rejection, of sin. When I, Lord, when I think of, of medieval Europe, what a dark time it was in so many ways. Yet look at where we are now. Hundreds of millions of people walking the earth who follow you. So, Father, help us to keep the big picture in mind. Help us not to see us as those who lose or those who are defeated, but in fact because we serve the king of the universe who has been granted all power, all authority, and all dominion, both in heaven and on earth. May we live with great confidence, with great joy, 
with great endurance, knowing that your kingdom will overcome. Father, we do pray for your kingdom come and your will be done here as it is in heaven. It's in the name of our King who entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, who will come again, um, victorious Savior, having defeated and overcome all enemies, all dominions, all powers, all authorities, all nations. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?